Hi, this is Courtney Hammond-Wegner with the In Common Podcast. Today I'm joined by Bill Blomquist, a professor of political science at Indiana University and a fellow at the Ostrom Workshop. In this conversation, we explore Bill's groundbreaking and decade-spanning research into California groundwater governance. We talk about Bill's work tracking the evolution of groundwater policy and institutions, the unique theoretical insights we can learn about natural resource governance from California's most recent groundwater experiment, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And finally, we end with some reflections on Bill's time working with the Ostrom Workshop. This is the In Common Podcast. I'd love to start um, hearing a bit about why you were innately um, interested in groundwater from the day you were born in California? Um, well, I, I was not innately interested in, in groundwater or California uh, from the time I was born. Um, but just a quick word uh, for listeners, a quick word of context is, I'm a Midwest kid. I mean, I grew up, I was born in Illinois, I grew up in Ohio, you know, and um, Started my PhD, went back, went to Ohio and went to college in Ohio. Started my PhD work in Michigan, ended up in Indiana and Bloomington, and, and then lived in Indianapolis. So you know, my my entire geography is this tight little you know four Great Lakes state space. Um, so I was not in interested in groundwater or California, except as a beautiful place, and. Um, and it, it, so I came into the study of, of California water and groundwater specifically, purely, completely, 100% because of Elmer Ostrom. Um, and even there, you know, that was just happenstance and an extraordinary stroke of, of luck for me. Because when I went to IU Bloomington to get my PhD in political science, I didn't know who the Ostroms were. I had never heard of either of them. Um, this was, by the way, this was 1982. I mean, this was before okay. Eleanor became the, this was before Eleanor Ostrom became Eleanor Ostrom in the sense that she, you know, she didn't have quite the global profile that she soon acquired after that. But I got assigned to her to wow. be the research assistant. I mean, talk about just dumb luck. I mean, I literally you know, showed up in the doorway of her office in August of that year of 82, she was moving boxes because she had just become department chair in the political science department. So she was like moving into the department chair's office. And that's how we met. And um, when I, we talked about, you know, what she might want to have me work on. And she said, well, you know, we used to do, meaning she and Vincent, we used to do um, this, this work on um, groundwater basins in Southern California, mm. referring back to her, her UCLA PhD dissertation. And, you know, since we've moved to Indiana, we've kind of, you know, lost track of, lost touch with what's going on out there. And I'd like to, you know, reconnect and find out what's been going on. Now, I'm a Midwest kid getting a PhD in political science from Indiana University. I just show up for my first meeting with my professor whom I've been assigned to and she says she wants me to look at groundwater in Southern California and clearly the look on my face communicated to her that I had no idea why 
um, I should be interested in this. I had no idea why she would be interested in this. I had no idea why any political scientist in Indiana would be interested in this. So she gave me this, you know, little short, very short talk that I've told people. It didn't start with the words, look, kid, but it <laughs> could have started with the words, look, kid, because it was kind of like, look, kid. Um, out West, you know, where they had lived and where they had come from, out West, this is war and peace. Hmm. This is life and death. Mm -hmm. This is which communities prosper and which communities, you know, sort of wither on the vine. And, and that's why, you know, we're interested in this political science. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, um, and so, you know, I got assigned to her and, and I, my job then was to kind of reconnect with people in Central and West Basins in Southern California, the places that she had written about in her dissertation. And, um, and I, I mean, this is, again, I mentioned this is 1982, how long ago this is, this is pre-internet, you know, so I'm mm. like make, dialing long distance phone calls to talk to people at, you know, the Central and West Basin Water Replenishment District, you know, six words that had never come out of my mouth before <laughs> in that order. Um, and so uh, anyway, uh, that was, you know, that was how I, I, I got assigned to this. And then I found it fascinating. And she and I just kind of kept going through the rest of my uh, time as a graduate student. I ended up doing my dissertation on a couple of the cases that she had studied, Central and West, but a couple of additional groundwater cases in Southern California. And then beyond that, expanded that further into you know, another set of cases and, and you know, got my faculty appointment uh, here at IUPUI, the, the Indianapolis campus. And um, I just kept, kept going because I just kind of, you know, fell in love with it and still at it for, uh, you know, what is now coming up on almost 40 years. So, um, yeah, but if you'd have told me when I applied to the political science PhD program in Indiana University, Bloomington, having lived in the Midwest, my whole life where like 40 inches of this of water falls out of the sky for free per year on average. You know, my, my, I would have said water, what? Huh? Is there a problem? You know? So what did you, what did you go to do your PhD? Like when you started your PhD in political science was, did you have like topics that merged into groundwater or was that just sort oh. of all fortuitous? Like what, I'm, I'm was, curious was, on that path. Was, no, thanks. It was fortuitous. Um, I, I, I wasn't even, I, I didn't even have like an environmental policy. Wow. Okay. I was, I was an undergrad econ major. I had a graduate certificate in public administration and an MA in policy. You know, I sort of, to the extent that I was interested in, in policy issues, they tended to be things like economic policy. Um, and I certainly had. I mean, the th thing that connected for me the most was probably um, federalism, hmm. sort of multi-level governance, because I did have an interest in that. I had done a couple of internships in local government while I was coming along and had been um, active more as a volunteer in a couple of state politics campaigns and things like that. So that sort of multi-level 
um, governance that comes with in the United States federalism, uh, as in a lot of other countries, you know, that was something I was able to kind of connect this with. But yeah, no, I, wow. I have a hard, I have a hard, it's been so long and, and I've been so consumed by this other stuff since that I have a hard time like putting myself back in, hmm. you know, the summer of 1982 and going, what am I going to get a PhD for or in? Um, you know, what am I going to write a dissertation about? You know, I, I don't even know what that guy was thinking um, at the time because everything then just sort of took this hard turn and uh, hasn't changed. Yeah, well, very fortuitous. <laughs> well, it, it hasn't changed even when I tried to get away with from it. You know, like, you, you, I mean, you can understand this. You've thought about sort of academic careers and academic trajectories. Hang on, do my dissertation on this. I do a book after that. I you know, get through the tenure process and all that. And I think, okay, it's time for me to set this groundwater stuff aside. It's time for me to do something else. I don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to be like, you know, that groundwater guy. <laughs> I'm besides what the heck am I doing with this in Indianapolis? I'm like, yeah. I don't teach courses on this stuff. I don't even you know, do anything. You know, so I've written about local government, federalism, and metropolitan organization, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, I, just, I would always find my way back to the water stuff because I just, I don't know, fell in love with it. Well, so I wonder, going from... Like one thing I think is really like unique and fascinating about your career is that you have stuck with, especially that topic of California groundwater. You know, yeah. it seems like you've, you've done a lot in the water realm. Yeah. Um, so you haven't really pigeoned yourself just to California, <laughs> but you know, you've, you've, um, you've been this sort of consistent staying factor in the, the evolution of California's policy. Um, and I wonder how much yeah, of that. At this point, I've been there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want to ask about that too. That sort of, <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, but thinking about, you know, the evolution of, of from where you started, you know, with these few um, water districts and thinking about mm -hmm. groundwater and then up to today, you know, where, where California has gone through this. Um, big transition with the new legislation, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. What has it been like for you to, to, you know, follow and study and sort of be a part of that evolution? So much fun, really. I mean, part of it is I've always felt, um, and I, you, you and I may have even chatted about this in the past, but I've, I've always felt um, like being 2,000 miles away is both a disadvantage and an advantage. Hmm. It's it's obviously a disadvantage for very practical reasons. You know, if if I were out there, especially if I had been out there before, um, you know, electronic communication became as seamless as it largely has become. But if if I had been out there for the last uh, whatever thirty or something years, thirty eight years. Um, in some ways, it would have been easier, you know, just to stay in contact with people and follow what's going on and more closely and so forth. It's always required a little bit of additional effort to do that from a distance. Um, at the same time, the distance has been 
um, advantageous. Hmm. Because as you know, because you're there now, um, Lynn was right. Like, you know, water is war and peace and life and death and all of that in California. It's intensely political, intensely conflictual. And it would have been very hard, um, I think, to have been engaged with it for a really long academic career without getting tagged as being on a side hmm. or yeah. part of some particular alliance or interest. And um, in some ways, being that weird guy who flies in from 2,000 miles away and is interested in what you know, people in California do and talk to them and listen to them and, and, and you know, attend meetings and give presentations and, you know, and then, and then get back on that plane and go 2,000 miles away and then sit and think and write about it. Um, that's not been bad, um, you know. Uh, there's lots of other good reasons to want to be in California, but, but in terms of, of having California water as a research interest, it's been kind of a mixed blessing to be, um, to, to not be there. Yeah, I could, it's, it's funny you saying that because I, I feel like now being, you know, part of an institution at, you know, being at Stanford, Water in the West, where um, even though I'm new to it, um, there, this is such a long-standing issue, you know, right. water in California, that everything right. has a history. And so I'm tapped into a history that I don't even really fully know. And then you sort of start to hear piecemeal. And, uh, and so there's assumptions about your positionality and Sure. Uh, what you're bringing to the table or why you might be asking certain questions. So I could see sure. that as a real advantage. Yeah. And, I, well, it has been for me. It's been really, you know, just a, a, another way in which I've been pretty fortunate. So did you kind of thinking, you know, more specifically about um, the trajectory of how things have evolved in California? I'm thinking you guys, you had a really nice paper um, recently that talked about like the path dependence of, of yes, we um, get to mutually plug our special issue. Yes, there you go. Our... <laughs> Listeners, uh, Courtney Hammond and Miles have a wonderful contribution to a forthcoming special issue. Of society. That's what that's what this is all about. You know, we'll also see <laughs> with Bloomquist's name on it somewhere. Uh, yeah. Well, I do think it's it's a fun. It was a fun special issue in the sense that. Um, you know, it's, I, I feel like, you know, Sigma, as it's lovingly called, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, right. um, is, is really unique in that there's so much research going on around it um, yes. at a lot of different institutions that you can build a whole special issue around it, which was, I think is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I thank you. I, I just add, you know, to what you just said, I mean, you think about the number of researchers and the number of institutions, it's really remarkable. And in some ways it's built or strengthened or reinforced a network. Yeah. Um, among um, California water academics, whether they come from environmental science or engineering, or whether they come from economics or political science or law or, or whatever other disciplines, um, there has probably been in the, you know, I don't think this is what the legislators in Sacramento had in mind in 2014, but there, this is not the goal. 
of the statute, but it has probably done more in the last six years to get California water researchers talking to each other yeah. uh, than just about anything I can think of. Yeah, you're totally right. And from a lot of angles, you know, yeah. I feel like there's a new Sigma webinar every week and I don't see that going away <laughs> for some time. <laughs> no. no. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's just to see each other on Zoom. Right? Yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm just, if you went back to, you know, your PhD self studying these basins um, yeah. and then, you know, had this momentary insight that in 2014, this legislation was going to be passed um, that, you know, mandates groundwater regulation across the state, but in this really unique way, you know, that you've written about where the state is mandating local agencies to act. Um, is that something that you, I mean, obviously it's a, a silly question to ask if you could have foreseen, but does it surprise you the way that that path has evolved? Um, it, it, it was surprising for, uh, because, um, I was in another one of those, I'll, I'll just personalize this for a moment and then come back to the substance, but I was in another one of those phases of my career where I wasn't paying attention because <laughs> for, for seven years I served as a dean. Oh, okay. Uh, here uh, at, at IUPUI, Dean of School of the Arts. And, um, and, and, and so I wasn't staying on top of things as well as I might have under other circumstances. And, um, and in, in, in 2014, um, Leon Sotitsky, who was the director of Water in the West at the time, um, contacted me. I didn't know Leon. He was kind of a contact out of the blue. And he said, you know about this new statute? And, uh, he told me a little bit more about it, and I looked at a little bit more about it, and uh, and I was about ready to transition back to regular faculty life anyway. But that was like a deciding factor for me that I wanted to set the administrative work in, uh, aside again and go back to regular faculty life so I could do more research. Because frankly, Sigma was like somebody backed a giant truck full of candy up into my driveway and swung the gate open and said, do you want any? <laughs> Which yeah. my response was, why well, yes, I, I, I would. <laughs> um, so I went, you know, hat tip to Leon for, for getting in touch with me about it. But uh, so it was a little bit of a surprise just because I wasn't paying as much attention. But the statute itself, once I learned about what it was, it is, it is surprising in the sense that um, I came away from reading it thinking what a, um, in many ways, thoughtful and smart, not mm. perfect, but thoughtful and smart approach this was um, to require uh, local actors to do something in the basins that were the most in trouble, but to leave to them broad discretion and considerable grants of authority mm -hmm. to do something. Um, so you know, here are powers that you may never have had before, um, but you have to use them. And that was an interesting bargain, I think, for the state to uh, strike with local governments uh, around the state. And then as you mentioned, it, it's targeted. It's not every 
last groundwater basin in the state of California. The state had, by the time um, this statute, again, as you, as you said, we call it SIGMA for Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Um, by the time SIGMA passed, the state already had a list of um, about 130 um, groundwater basins that they rated as being medium or high priority, either because of the degree of dependence on groundwater uh, or because of the um, you know, sort of problems, the, the negative conditions of those groundwater basins or a combination of, of both. And, and so Sigma is, applies to those medium and high priority groundwater basins in the state, not to every groundwater basin in the state of California. If the groundwater basin is not in trouble or uh, it's not an important source of supply for your local area, you don't have to jump through all these hoops. But if it is important to your economy and to your, and to your population, and if you do have problems, now you've got to do something about it. And all of this comes on the background of decades of locally initiated, sort of voluntarily undertaken groundwater management in some places. So it wasn't as though nobody in California had ever done anything about groundwater. It was, there were places in California, there are places in California that are sort of internationally known um, for being, you know, especially good, progressive, innovative at groundwater management. But then there were you know, gigantic areas of the state where there was just no kind of groundwater management going on at all. And, um, and, and the state policymakers finally said, you know, we can't continue to just leave it to local initiative to, to do. Local initiative has gotten us so far, but it hasn't gotten us far enough. And we need to essentially make the areas that haven't done anything yet do something. So had you seen, well, maybe backing up, I feel like, and I, I know we've talked about this before, um, but maybe just to lay it out that I feel like this model of Sigma that you just described is fascinating, theoretically, you know, if you put on the, um, oh, yeah. you know, political science lens of, yeah. you've got, um, especially drawing from, you know, your previous work and, um, Eleanor Ostrom's work of, and the, the whole, you know, commons governance work around, right. you know, what leads to these locally, um, you know, emerged and driven institutions to succeed. Right. All of a sudden you add in this new element that like the state recognizes that that's important, mm -hmm. but also isn't going to leave it up to them to, you know, it isn't like the clock's ticking. We got to do something. Right. Um, had you seen, a model like that before, in, like implemented at such a scale? Definitely not. I mean, for, to, to me, it's unique in terms of scale and scope. Uh, and also just as a straight up mandate. Hmm. Um, you can find, at least in the US, plenty of other policy examples where some kind of, of local or regional scale coordination was necessary in order to qualify for funding. Mm. So, you know, metropolitan areas throughout the United States have metropolitan planning organizations and they develop things like regional transportation plans and so forth in order to qualify because you can't have, you know, there's certain kinds of federal funding programs that you're not eligible for unless you've got some kind of a regional plan. 
transportation plan or you've got you know other kinds of, of um, state or local state or regional level uh, coordination necessary to receive federal funding or states have done this to local uh, communities before you guys have to get together and you know decide what you want to do together and then you'll qualify for funding. California had done a little bit of that, had offered funding for regional coordination around water stuff in the past. But what was what is still distinctive about Sigma in my awareness is it wasn't as a condition of funding. Sigma just says you have to do this. And you have to submit, you know, you have to, to form a groundwater sustainability agency and, and we have to approve it. And you have to submit a groundwater sustainability plan and we have to approve it. And then you have to update it every five years and you have to be showing progress towards sustainable groundwater use and, you know, and, and so forth and so on. Now, the state has offered funding. Let me, let me mm -hmm. be clear. The state has offered funding and there are some pots of money that, that groundwater sustainability agencies and other local governments can apply for, for assistance from the state. But what was different about Sigma is there was no, the statute itself doesn't offer funding or say you have to do this in order to qualify for funding. The statute itself says you have to do this. Mm -hmm. And then and the state has offered some funding to assist with planning or to, you know, to allow local communities that are trying to get together around a plan to hire a facilitator or you know have other kinds of support services and the state of california has always uh funded um water studies and technical studies basin investigations hydrologic hydrogeologic kinds of studies so in that uh, those kind of enabling conditions have always been in place but those conditions aren't in this statute sigma just says you gotta do it and it's not a condition of funding, it's a condition of retaining local control. The or else is not the checks will stop flowing. The or else is, or the state will come in and manage your groundwater basin for you. Yeah, which is a pretty big threat, you know? Oh my God, strikes terror into the hearts of, of, of local groundwater users up and down the state. So yeah, it's been fascinating. And even there, you know, you've got a good cop, bad cop dynamic too, because there are two <laughs> people, you know, people who haven't already nodded off. Hang on, uh, in California, <laughs> there are two statewide agencies with, well, there are multiple statewide agencies with some kinds of responsibilities that overlap with water, but two mainly uh, with water as their as their responsibilities. There's a Department of Water Resources. There's also a state water board. Fuller name is the State Water Resources Controller, and um, and they have um, been given and have embraced sort of good cop bad cop roles on this. So the Department of Water Resources is there with funding and technical expertise, and we're going to help you. You know, we're going to lay out you know the specifics of what you have to have in groundwater sustainability plans, and you know consultants are on call. You know, if you get in touch. Right? <laughs> the state board is like a hammer, you know, and, and the, the, the baseball bat in the closet somewhere, which is the, you know, and if you don't do the stuff that the statute says right. you have to do, the state board will come and take over your groundwater basin and you'll never see it, you know, with all the sort of horrors that 
I, yeah, I see that. I mean, I feel like I've sat in on too many Sigma webinars lately, but I see that play out in these webinars, you know, where it's like these questions about the Department of Water Resources are lobbed at the State Water Control Board and they're like, you know, really tight lipped and Oh, and, and, and uh, yes, absolutely. And they, and, they, and they know it. You know, the people from those respective agencies sort of know that the, role, the roles that they have been put in yeah. uh, by this statute and how it will be implemented. And they have um, sort of made their peace with that. So, you know, the DWR folks can go around the state and go, well, you better do this or, you know, the state mm -hmm. board. And, you know, and then when you talk to state, when local uh, water users or agencies talk to the state board people they go well you know most of your guidance is coming from dwr we'll really only get involved if, mm -hmm. you know, yeah it's definitely it's like mom and dad or i don't know what you know sort of analogy you want it's pretty uh, funny yeah so i'd love to um i feel like sigma is one of those topics in california groundwater there's so many it's like so juicy you know these details of I mean, it's like right. water in the West in general. You think of Cadillac Desert and these stories of, you oh, know, that yeah. are just so oh. intriguing. I mean, it's that, that war and peace, life and death, like you talked about. Um, yeah. But I'm thinking more to go, <laughs> switching from the juicy. No, hopefully it's not <laughs> switching from the juicy, but I'm thinking more. <laughs> Enough of the interesting. Enough stuff. of the fun. Um, <laughs> thinking, you know, from a research perspective, what are some of the things either, you know, that you've been studying around Sigma or, um, you know, that you found fascinating from a research perspective or, you know, theoretically looking forward as the um, policy continues to be implemented? Um, what are some of the big questions that you feel like this experiment in groundwater governance that, that California is um, in the midst of can help us understand better about you know both groundwater but also water and natural resources governance more broadly or or even you know i, I feel like it, the it doesn't need to be limited there right because you're right. yeah i'm yeah, curious it's a, it's a great object lesson that travels way outside of the realm of water and and you're absolutely i agree with you completely about that uh for example if you're interested in multi-level governance processes in general, whether they're dealing with water or other environmental issues or whether they're dealing with whatever, education, social services. You know, it, there are these relationships or relationship types, I'll put it that way, that you can imagine a larger jurisdiction and local, you know, smaller jurisdictions, local jurisdictions having with each other. And, um, our colleague uh, Ashibash Sarkar uh, gave the name state reinforced self governance to this concept of a larger jurisdiction sort of supporting local efforts. But, and as insightful as Ashibash is in having put that concept together, you can unpack that further because like, and, and start creating sort of subcategories of it. So like Sigma is what I call state mandated self, mm. right? 
which is a little different from state reinforced self-governance. State reinforced self-governance sounds nice. Uh, state mandated <laughs> it's a PC version. <laughs> a little different connotation to it. And you know, and I, along with other uh, colleagues in a succinct pursuit uh, around state reinforced around the state reinforced self-governance process or concept, we've started you know thinking about well. You know, there's, and, and, and you can see this in that Society of Natural Resources paper that, that Evan Dennis and Anita Melman and Tara Moranum collaborated on is, you know, there's a state-enabled self-governance, which just provides support services. And then if you guys want to do something, it's up to you to do it. And you can have sort of state-incentivized mm. Self-governance, like here are carrots. You know, here are some carrots that, that will dangle out in front of you, and if you guys want to get organized and do something, you're you're eligible for these carrots. Um, but there's no sticks; there's just carrots, right? And and so it's state incentivized. Um, and then you could think about something like state-regulated self-governance, which is you can do whatever you want as long as you know you sort of don't go outside these guardrails, right? That you know, it's still voluntary. And then sigma is like this other subcategory, uh, or sigma fits in this other subcategory and looking for, for, for more other examples of state-mandated self-governance, which mm -hmm. is we're gonna leave it to you, but you have to do it. You know, you must do something. And um, so you know, one way to think about the sort of interesting research questions that something like sigma presents is Sigma helps us, or at least it's helped me, sort of unpack that idea of that multi-level relationship and take Ashutosh's, uh, Ashutosh Sucker's uh, uh, phrase, state reinforced self-governance, and then think about, you know, sort of penetrate into that a little bit further and say, well, there could be sort of varieties of that. Mm -hmm. And Sigma is an example of one of the possible varieties of that. So I mean, that's, that's kind of one thing to think about. But then there's all this other thing to think about. There's a huge um, opportunity to study coordination hmm. uh, by thinking about something like Sigma. Because um, I mean, again, you know, taking, taking your listeners down the Sigma rabbit hole with us here. But um, you know, when we mention these groundwater sustainability agencies that have to be formed, um, they are required to be formed in each of these medium and high priority groundwater basins. But there can be more than one groundwater sustainability agency in a basin that were not required to, you know, the, they, there was some discussion of, of the statute, you know, having one basin, one GSA, one plan, um, but that, got, that sort of fell apart in the, final trading the votes to get the thing passed. And so instead it's this sort of, you know, let hundreds of flowers bloom uh, approach. And, and without exaggeration, as you know, there were like 250 groundwater sustainability agencies formed for 120 groundwater basins. So many of the basins have multiple agencies, but they have to get their plans together. They either have to collaborate on one groundwater sustainability plan for the whole basin, or if they do their own plans, they have to coordinate their plans with each other. So there's a huge opportunity. There's a fantastic statewide, you know, field experiment in intergovernmental coordination. Mm. 
uh, where you know these these agencies in those basins that have multiple agencies, they have to work together. They can't just go off and do their own thing. They really want to do their own thing. That's why they formed their own agency. So you get this tension between the desire for autonomy, which is deeply ingrained in um, the political culture of California water policy, right? Mm -hmm. Don't tell us what to do. We'll take care of ourselves. We'll do our own thing. Fine. So this desire for autonomy and this requirement for coordination. And there's an opportunity there for all of us to study, you know, how do um, local communities within the same region work their way through that tension between the desire to do their own thing and the recognized necessity of having to, to coordinate with, with neighbors. And, and, you know, and then, you know, what is, there's a whole other, you know, train of research one could do about sustainability and what does it mean? And you know, this is the sustainable railroad management. Um, mm -hmm. Another indication of how things have changed over many, many years. I'm not talking about sustainability. When Alan and I started working on this stuff back in the 80s, we weren't talking about sustainability. You know, um, it's not that we wouldn't have understood what somebody meant, but that has become a term mm -hmm. that has become then now widely used to the point where it shows up in public policy now. Um, and so, you know, the, the statute requires that these groundwater basins be managed sustainably. And then you have to work through this whole thing about, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. And, and then as you know, because this is your work, um, or a, a particular focus of your work, which is um, what does sustainability mean in the midst of change? Because among the other, among many other things that the statute requires that these groundwater sustainability agencies take climate change into account in their groundwater sustainability plans and how they will implement them going forward uh, over a 40 year planning horizon. So, Whatever sustainability means, it can't mean we're just going to do this and leave it in place for four years. Yeah. It well, it, has to mean some kind of adaptation. And so right. we want to study adaptive governance, which many of us in the environmental world from multiple disciplines, you know, talk about adaptive governance and adaptive management. Sigma, you can, you can use Sigma to you know, satisfy your, you know, to scratch your itch for, for studying adaptive governance. And, you know, as, yeah. as, as, as you've heard me say before, Courtney, I've said to, to, to a lot of, who has better jobs than we do? <laughs> Come on. This is, this is more fun than human beings ought to be allowed to. It's a pretty cool topic. I'm glad to have stumbled on it myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, I don't know what the heck I would have been doing. I might still be. So I want to um, switch gears a little bit, but stay stay on groundwater um, and and ask you about. Um, I think it would be, I sort of alluded to this early on, but you know your role in having studied this for so long, but then you inevitably sort of get looped into being, I, I don't know, maybe this is more of a question, you know, brought into the processes and more of an actor, maybe in some ways or influencer um, than, you know, a, 
a direct observer. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it's less of that, but more question around what's your, your interaction been like with practitioners throughout this process? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, yeah, I appreciate you asking. Not that much, really. Uh, there have been a couple of occasions where I've done some consulting hmm. um, around governance issues. So, um, and, and specifically around sort of regional coordination stuff, like how, how do we do things together? So I've been a little bit of, I've had a few opportunities to, to you know, to wear that academic hat where you are both studying and offering, you know, advice or recommendations or helping people think through uh, a puzzle. I've had a couple of occasions, really only a couple of uh, being an expert witness in, uh, mm. You know, in some some uh, some cases, um, and it's you know I, I've in, I've enjoyed those opportunities when they they've come, but I think you know I probably would have done more of that if I had been on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know that sort of mixed bag of feelings about you know being a California water nerd and not being in California. Um, so, yeah. But I, I've gotten a chance to do a little of that and, and um, I've always enjoyed it, but largely just because it puts me back in touch with practitioners and any opportunity uh, to, to talk to practitioners. Most of my, you know, a lot of my research has been you know, interviews. Yeah. But, but as, you, as you have done, um, because there's a you know, few things I like more as far as work goes, than having the opportunity to, especially you know, when, I, when I can get out there, which hasn't happened for uh, over eight months now. Um, but when I can get out there uh, and, and, you know, and, and set up appointments and go and visit and sit and talk with people and ask them questions about what they're doing and how they're puzzling through this and, and you know, who's driving them crazy, which is always one of my favorite questions. I'm sure you get it. Never have a problem getting an answer to that one. No, no, no. Uh, that's the beauty of, of, of this uh, particular uh, field of study is that you can talk to anybody who's involved in anything regarding water management or water policy in California and just ask them who's making them crazy. And, uh, and then just sit back. <laughs> conversation will sort of take it. I'll remember that for interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I ever run into a stomach. And, and, then, and then as a good researcher, you know, then know who you need to talk to next. Right. right? <laughs> that's your snowball sample. <laughs> right. That's my snowball sample. Like who's making you crazy? And then I need to talk to that person. Uh, or somebody from that agency or that you know level of government or whatever and, and, and get their side of the story and so forth yeah so following up on that and maybe a little bit of a different direction um i don't know i don't know if this has been your experience but you know and you're involved in a lot of well water the water world um a lot of like water associations um you know seen you at AGU at the American Geophysical Union. Right. Um, and, and then something that has become, you know, more obvious to me in, in 
California and reading up on the history of water in the West is just as how much has been driven by, you know, engineering and, um, you know, geotechnical studies. And yeah. I wonder what your experience has been like in this world for, you know, this period of time now as a social scientist, um, you know, interacting with, in these interviews with, mm-hmm. um, with people who have different backgrounds. Yeah, I'd just be curious if you have any reflections on that. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because you're, you're, you know, when you, when you bring your economics and political science degrees out to, you know, the groundwater world, um, you do not come in with automatic street credibility, shall we say? Um, <laughs> so, you know, you have to do a little bit of, you have to be a, willing to, to invest a little bit of time in getting outside your own comfort zone and trying to understand at least enough of hydrogeology and at least enough uh, about you know, how uh, engineered systems work uh, to at least be able to hold intelligent conversations um, with people. But here's the fascinating thing that I have found is um, that Having my own focus on governance and management as a social scientist um, has given me a different way of having conversations with people uh, who have technical backgrounds. And that is, um, and I'll, I'll try to be concise about this, but in most water districts and water agencies, um, the people who work their way to positions like general manager or you know, chief engineer or something, are people who have come up through the technical side, right? They're people who came out of engineering school and got a job with, you know, blah, 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 water district, and, you know, then worked their way up to, you know, assistant engineer and then district engineer. And then, uh, you know, and then they eventually get promoted to a job like general manager. And all of a sudden, um, as some folks have said to me, you know, like there was nothing about this in engineering school. Right? Hmm. Like suddenly they're dealing with budgets and personnel and law and regulations, and they're spending more time in meetings with attorneys and, you know, financial analysts, and they're dealing with the, the other local governments in their region, and they're dealing with state policy and state policymakers and so forth. And um, there have been moments in conversations with folks like that who've come up into positions of, of management and authority in water agencies, and I show up as you know, the political scientist, and they're like, oh, thank God, you know, somebody who's supposed to know something about all of this, right? which, of course, I, you know, have very little <laughs> actual useful to offer, but... Um, but the fact is, you know, that having this weird non-technical background mm. has opened up some conversations with people who are in positions of responsibility in the water world that take them into the politics and the economics of it um, that was not part of their training, was not part of their background. All of a sudden, there they are with these responsibilities, and they look at somebody like, you know, in, in this case, me, but it could be, you know, anybody with a similar background and go, oh, <laughs> oh, you know, 
<laughs> well, that's good. Oh, this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like I have experienced that a little bit so far. It was surprising to me. Um, when, well, when the, um, the special issue came out and my paper was all about fairness, you know, which is like, um, and I had a lot of water managers reach out and say, you know, this is what I've been talking about, (laughs) you know, I can can believe that easily because this is the stuff, you know, I mean, we were joking earlier about, you know, who drives you crazy, but the other question is what drives you crazy? Yeah. And if you're a general manager of a water district in California, what keeps you awake at night is the fights that people have over fairness, the fights that people have over representation, the fights that people have over uh, justice, the fights that people have over equity, the fights that people have over who's going to pay for what, um, or who's going to give up what, or, you know, and, and again, you know, I, it's just not necessarily a portfolio of issues that people were necessarily ready for hmm. um, when they came into their positions, or if they've been in their positions a long time. I mean, you and I could sit here and rattle off names of people that we probably both know and have had fun conversations with, um, where they've been in their positions for a long time. And they're going, yeah, it's all about people, and it's all about fitness, and it's all about conflict and conflict resolution, and it's all about, you know, I mean, water is necessary, but water problems are people problems, mm-hmm. not water problems per se. They're, they're, they're problems of us and what we do and how we treat each other and what we, you know, and, and the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. Yeah, I think that's a really good insight um, or way to frame it. It reminds me, I was thinking about um, your talk that I saw at, at the American Geophysical Union. We were talking about groundwater allocation oh, and, oh, you know, yeah. the inherent politics of it. Um, yeah. You know, that there is no, this quest for like, what's the, well, I'm going to paraphrase, I think what you said, <laughs> you know, the quest for, you know, what's the right answer. There is no right answer. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I admire people who do sophisticated optimization models and, you know, come up with um, recommendations for like optimal groundwater allocation schemes. That's, you know, always really impressive work. Um, but as a, as, as, uh, uh, my uh, colleague, uh, our colleague, uh, Christina Babbitt, and I said in a recent presentation of the Groundwater Resources Association panel. Um, you know, optimal would be great, but really a groundwater allocation scheme only has to be better than nothing <laughs> in, <laughs> in order to be good. <laughs> because yeah. in most groundwater basins around the world, the current allocation scheme is none. Right. And you know, before we worry about getting to optimality, let's worry about getting off of none. And getting off of none is just mainly a matter of finding something that the people in that situation 
in that local circumstance with that history can agree to it in love with it's like the, it's the fairness issue that, that, that you and Meredith worked on uh, and, and done such good stuff about is, you know, in the end, what people who have a shared common pool resource that they're destroying need is not necessarily optimality. They just need something mm-hmm. that they can agree upon that will, figuratively speaking, sort of stop the bleeding. And you know, and then maybe you can work from there to, oh, and you know, we could also take, you know, do a conjunctive use program, or oh yeah, and then we could also do manage effort research recharge, or oh, then we could also do you know, better management of the storage capacity, the basement bubble, you know, all of these things that are out there to be done. But you're not gonna get there until you get past the, you know, just beating each other's brains out by, you know, who can drill the deeper well and who can, you know, install the the, the, the more high powered pump. And you know, until you break that cycle. You know, optimality is way over the horizon. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that was oh. one of the things I learned <laughs> from. I think that was one thing that, you know, I, I have to say, it's not something that, you know, I came up with. It's, it's I, I think it's, you know, it goes back to Ami's work, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She was fascinated by those long, enduring common pool resource cases that she wrote about in governing the commons. She was fascinated by them, not because they were perfect, but because they worked, because yeah. they had endured, because people had found, you know, an alternative to destruction, you know, that, 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 that they had not succumbed to the tragedy of the commons, that they mm-hmm. had come up with something else. And the something else that they'd come up with wasn't necessarily perfect. It wasn't necessarily the absolute best, highest possible use of that resource. But they weren't killing each other anymore. You know, they weren't destroying it anymore. That's progress. Yeah, that seems <laughs> you know? like success. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good transition. I know I've had you for a while. So I have, one, I have another question um, that sort of takes us away from water in California. Um, but back to the Ostrom workshop, because we, so I think we first met at the um, workshop on the workshop yeah. last spring. Yeah. Wow, yeah. six, I think it was. Wow, um, wow six, yes, workshop on the Ostrom workshop. Um, and that, so, you know, I, as a, as a researcher, have sort of admired from afar for a while and read a lot of the literature coming out of the Ostrom school, but um, that was my first time really, you know, coming and being a part of something. And, and, I, yeah. and I was really, I was really impressed with um, both, you know, like the uh, kind of the congenial atmosphere that seems to be of all these people who have been a part of this for a long time and keep coming back and really look forward to it, but yeah. also how welcoming it was, you know, to bring in somebody new like me, who's sort of just been in, you know, gotten interested and, and started to work into it. Um, so I'm, I'd be curious to hear your reflections on what it's been like being a part of that community for so long. Um, 
and how it's evolved and maybe where it's going. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really glad it felt that way because that's the way a lot of people, I mean, it, the, the Ostrom workshop is what it is because of two things. One, because new people come in hmm. and new people become part of, of, the, of the community of researchers. Um, and, and because um, what, what you come into uh, feels like a community feels like a group of people who um, who are more than tolerate each other <laughs> but actually sort of genuinely like and care about each other. Um, and I don't know what the, I wish I knew what the recipe is for something like that. Hmm. Um, it was what, it, it, it was like that when I showed up. I mean, when I showed up, the workshop had been around for, I guess, about 10 years. And um, it already felt like that. Hmm. And um, now it's been around for the come up on 50 years in 2023, I think. Wow. Um, you know, and it, and it still feels like that. Um, but a lot of credit goes to, you know, people who have um, put their shoulder to the wheel. I mean, it, the, the ultimate credit, of course, goes to, to Lynn and Vincent, who are no longer with us, but who started a place that felt like that mm. but you know i can't say enough about people like mike mcginnis and jimmy walker and dan cole you know who who stepped up um you know especially as vincent's health began to fail and as lynn became you know after the nobel prize and she was everywhere in the world all the time it seemed and you know and people needed to to step up and just handle sort of the day-to-day workings of the workshop in ways that, that you know, she just did not have the time for at that point. Um, you know, and then when we lost both of them in 2012, you know, just making sure that everything continued. The other thing that's been part of the atmosphere and the feel that you, that you sensed is the staff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Lynn said to me when I was a doctoral student and you know, heading for an academic career, and she said, you know, never underestimate the importance of the staff. Never, you know, look at or, or think of or treat uh, staff as anything but, you know, colleagues on the same plane. And as you know, you know, that's not always part of the academic culture, mm -hmm. um, but it was part of it. it, has been part of workshop culture, which is part of the reason why some folks have spent like no exaggeration, 40 year careers as staff wow. in the workshop um, because they mattered and they knew that they mattered and they respected, they were respected and they knew they were respected. Um, and um, so, you know, some of it, you know, that, you know, Lynn and Vincent starting it, Jimmy, Mike, Dan, others keeping it going, the staff being the continuity, the, you know, the thread that's run through all of this. And then a lot of credit to the new executive director, Scott Shackelford, who, um, you know, was new to IU, was new to the workshop not too terribly long ago, but just totally gets it. Hmm. The, 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 the place we all want is a place that feels like that. Always open to something new, always open to somebody new, 
Um, but we treat each other like friends and colleagues and like a bunch of people who care about each other and care about each other's work and who are always in each other's corner. Um, I've always, one of the things I've always appreciated about my affiliation with the Ostrom Workshop, even though for most of it I've been 50 miles away and doing other stuff, but um, everybody in the Ostrom Workshop is rooting for you, mm. if you're part of it. And everybody delights in each other's progress and accomplishments and success. There aren't that many places that feel like that. Um, and when you, you know, when you find them, you, you kind of want to stay attached. You kind of want to stay involved. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it definitely comes across that way. And well, I'm glad I mean, it should. That's what we want. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that I didn't ask about that you, that you want to mention? You know, I probably should, as a good Ostrom workshopper, I probably should, should uh, um, mention that, uh, especially for the In Common podcast and, and the IASC members, now that that affiliation has been forged, I should mention two things. First, um, you know, the, the Ostrom workshop also was uh, and Eleanor herself was part of the founding of the International Association for the Study of Commons, which is now a worldwide association of, of researchers from multiple disciplines and every corner of the planet who care about things. Uh, and and the this podcast is you know another manifestation of the fact that there's people all over the place who have this you know, these share these interests. And then I, I want to make sure I mention um, for anybody out there who wants to go to the Ostrom Workshop website and check it out, is we just decided to launch, we have research programs at the, at the Ostrom Workshop. And um, one of the research programs we just launched this year, again, this is Scott Shackelford's leadership, um, is a new research program on government, on commons governance. Hmm. And so you can go to the Ostrom Workshop website and, and under research programs, you can click on commons governance. We're just getting it up and running. Uh, I have the honor of being the interim director until we find um, somebody who will take it into the future. And, uh, and so right now we're just trying to build up that research program and um, find, you know, folks who want to be part of it. So, um, Very cool. Yeah. So we'll keep it going. Yeah. And it seems like there's been a lot of cool content coming out of the workshop with um, webinars and a podcast now as well. And, and as you guys have done with the podcast, stretching the concept of the commons, probably mm -hmm. in ways that not everybody likes um, or feels comfortable with, but as you know, people are talking about the commons in the context of knowledge and information and the ways in you know, these, these sort of social spaces, urban spaces, public spaces, and, and all of that. And you know, that's a, a vibrant part of all of these things. It's a vibrant part of this podcast series. It's a vibrant part of what we're doing at the Ostrom Workshop. It's a vibrant part of what's going on at IASC. Um, and we want the Government Commons Research Program at the Ostrom Workshop to be that inclusive. Bill, it has been so great chatting with you. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Courtney. What, um, I, I, I'm glad to have the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, we welcome you to check out other episodes of the podcast on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. Episodes can also be found on just about any other podcast app. On our website, you can find all of our audio content as well as our blog, which we use to post about content related to the show. You can also connect with us on Twitter, where we share links to new episodes, blog posts, and other tidbits relevant to the podcast and comments community. Feel free to reach out and get in touch with us with any feedback or ideas you have for the show. We'd love to hear what you think.